Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, I talked to Arc's director of research, Brett Winton. Brett is the author of our new white paper, Disruptive Innovation: Why Now? In this podcast, we go through how we identified five transformative technologies that could change the way the world works and become the critical productivity signposts that future historians identify. Artificial intelligence, DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, and blockchain technology are approaching tipping points as costs drop, unleashing demand across sectors and geographies that spur more innovation. According to our estimates, these five technology platforms could generate more than $50 trillion in business value over the next 10 to 15 years. Enjoy my discussion with Brett Winton. Brett, you came out with a paper recently called Disruptive Innovation, Why Now? I think this paper covers in many ways the kind of founding thesis of Arc Invest. Could you go through the primary, I guess, idea of this paper and what it tries to explain? From the beginning, from when we founded Arc, the reason we thought investing in innovation specifically and was a good place to put client money was because we believed that we are in a unique time in technological economic history. Often people say that things are happening faster than they ever have before. I think that is going on in certain areas, but really what's happening today is that there is a stacking of meaningful technologies, the likes of which we haven't seen in, we believe like a hundred years or a little more. And so this paper was an attempt to go back and look at the technological historic record and say, well, what, how do you define a meaningful technology? How do economic historians define a meaningful technology? And then looking at what they have previously defined as meaningful technologies, how does today compare relative to that historical record? And so in going through the work, we demonstrated that you do have to go back to the early 1900s to find an episode where you had really meaningful technologies all kind of coinciding to the degree that they have now. Actually, we believe that there's essentially more macroeconomic technology impact happening now than there ever has been in history. And so it both kind of confirms our suspicion. And it also indicates, you know, the potential disruption that is still coming over the next decade as these um, technologies proliferate into the marketplace and disrupt existing incumbents. So when you look at the charts that's in this paper, you previously in throughout history, all the way up to the 18th century, you see maybe one or two technologies stack on top of each other. And now you're saying going forward, we're going we're gonna to have five technologies simultaneously impact the world. Yeah. And so there's one of the 
actually challenges with the academic research is these really meaningful technologies, these signpost technologies, they don't occur that often. And so you don't have that many examples to look at to say, oh, this is what happens macroeconomically when these technologies enter the marketplace. It's You don't have as many kind of case studies, and this is what happens to industry while this occurs. And so you would say something like the car, it only happens every couple of decades. And so to have five things as big as the introduction of the internal combustion engine vehicle all happening at once, it's incredibly actually a rare occurrence. And so then, you know, if you look at the chart, our our work suggests that there's, you know, multiples more technological disruption happening now than equity markets and investors and entrepreneurs and the executives running existing businesses have ever before encountered. And our perspective is, so you better be looking directly at those disruptive technologies to figure out what the impact is, because it can be really change the way businesses operate, change where cash flows accrue in the value chain, and change the way the world works. So tell us a little bit about these five technologies. What are they and why were they selected? Sure. And so let's start out with the why were they selected. The economic theory that we use to categorize technologies is called the theory of general purpose technology platforms. And this really accrued a lot of like was uh, heavily written about in the 90s as kind of the computation computation was entering the marketplace. People were a little confused by the productivity statistics. People recognize that there, there are meaningful technologies that have happened throughout history, but we don't have like a good filter for saying what makes a technology meaningful. And the idea that was advanced, which is relatively well accepted, is that, well, all of these meaningful technologies, they follow a steep cost decline, meaning that they are delivering dramatically better productivity per unit cost over time. They are have wide breadth in terms of their distribution, as in they're going to impact a number of different sectors. They're not just single sector specific or be used in a number of different sectors. Uh, and then they themselves are platforms on top of which other innovations can be built. And so if you look at the academic literature, there's disagreements on which technologies qualify for this. And, and there's some like blurring, was the meaningful advance the internal combustion engine being invented? Or was it packaging that into the automobile? Or was it the moving assembly line? And so we believe that today there are five, we would call them technology platforms that qualify under these criteria. We classify them as as gene sequencing and editing, robotics, particularly collaborative robotics, energy storage within the lithium-ion battery space in particular, artificial intelligence spurred by essentially the innovations and neural networks with which you're very familiar, and blockchain, which, you know, could have the most dramatic impact of all, but we believe that it's at the earliest stages in terms of its penetration into the marketplace. So all of these were were very confident qualify in terms of their cross-sectoral impact, the fact that they're following steep cost declines, that they're at an inflection point of adoption where suddenly they are useful across multiple industries, and then that they themselves have lots of things being built on top of them. And so if you look at the, the modeling that we did in the paper, we basically constructed an academic consensus of what were meaningful 
technology platforms historically. And then with these technologies, we basically said, well, if each of these is the equivalent of the computer in terms of academic consensus, but not so clearly a meaningful technological advance as uh, electricity was, then you know, what would be the macroeconomic impact or the disruptive impact of those technologies? And so then that's how you end up with this conclusion that, wow, this is this is a rate of innovation that we've never seen before, that nobody has ever experienced, that no equity market participant, you know, really knows how to accommodate or figure out how to take advantage of. I look at these five and one stands out as being kind of the surprise and that's energy storage. Something like AI and blockchain and DNA sequencing sounds very futuristic and a lot of the advances were made recently, but batteries seems to have been around for a while. Does this energy storage mean a specific kind of battery? And what's the consideration to, I guess, making the humble battery one of these technology platforms? Sure. Well, so the, I mean, the battery is a key enabling platform for a bunch of other applications, you know, everything from the Apple watch that should be on your wrist, though you lost yours and the one that's on my wrist to what we think is going to happen with autonomous vehicles and essentially drones delivering packages everywhere and taxis delivering us from place to place at a dramatically lower price depends upon the lithium ion battery and the cost decline advance there. But there's also Like one of the challenges of this is saying, you know, how do you bucket and draw lines between these platforms? There's lots of convergence. So for instance, it's very, very clear to us that the unit economics of of a robo taxi will demand that it's on an electric vehicle platform, but also you couldn't have that robo taxi without also having the neural net that's going to drive it. And you could say, well, a robo taxi is really just like a smart robot anyway. So maybe that fits under robotics. So I think from where you draw the lines can vary depending upon essentially your subjective judgment. And there's even kind of technologies underlying all of these that within the paper I go through and and, and don't, I score the individual technologies underlying these to end up with the aggregate scores. And so how you bucket those, you know, you could argue could go in different directions, but this is the way we're comfortable talking about it now. And like in particular with, with batteries, what's interesting about it to me is this is a technology that was at uh, ostensible maturity until it began to cross price thresholds where it would enable electric vehicles, which enabled manufacturing scaling to tip the cost curve back down, which is now going to qual- uh, allow it to hit Uh, make unit economic sense in a number of different sectors, like electric aviation, we believe, at least on short haul flights, is going to become something that's possible, Um, vertical takeoff and landing. Taxis, we believe, are going to price per mile at something comparable with with a New York City taxi today over the next five years. The energy storage, where you're actually displacing natural gas plants to put in um, these giant energy storage batteries will then drive even more volumes, which will drive it further down the cost curve. And so it went from something that was more narrow in scope to being able to hit, make a unit economic case in a lot of different subsectors, which then we believe will make it broadly proliferate. How much economic impact do you think will be created individually or together from these five technologies? So across the five, it's literally tens of trillions of dollars in in equity market cap appreciation. If you look at a very high level, we believe that the more than half of incremental equity market appreciation 
from today over the next decade will be attributable to these five technology platforms. So that could mask like a lot of disruption underneath. So take the automotive sector, you may have a lot of traditional automakers get displaced by some public market participants and some private companies that are advancing along these technological vectors. And so there could be other growth outside of those areas, but it's um, each platform we believe is ultimately going to accrue trillions of dollars in equity market capital. So when you say it will take half of the incremental gain, and then you have cannibalization of the, the existing cap below that, yeah. really it's saying it will, I guess it's impacted even greater than half, depending on how you how you look at it. Yes. I guess there's, we believe there's like $50 trillion that's going to accrue to these platforms. I believe it's over a decade. And that the, you know, if you look at total equity market cap today, I, it's something like $80 trillion. And then if you have a normal kind of equity return over the decade, you'd add another $90 trillion over the course of the decade. And, and so then the 50 trillion out of the 90 would be attributable to these. But you know, there could be like, we believe that the retail banking sector, for example, is going to face severe distress. So there's a lot of underlying upheaval that could occur between here and there. A lot of creation and destruction. Exactly. I guess what makes this exciting from an investor, especially a long-term technology investor's perspective is normally investing, you basically you have to generate new thesis all the time, right? You have to pick new names every year, especially if you have you know more of a standard time horizon. Um, but this is, if if this is correct, this is saying um, if you invest just in these five reasonably well, you will capture the the super majority of growth for the next 10, 20 years. Right, and if you look at growth investing generally, like most of the contribution to outperformance accrues to very few names. Like there's some, I think. If you strip out the top 2% of returners on uh, the market, you end up the stub, the 98% stub produces basically a you know, treasury bond returns. So even the public markets follow these power laws that the VCs adhere to. Exactly. And so from one of the really interesting and fascinating things about these technologies, at least from my perspective, is that those criteria, that steep cost decline, that cross-sector exposure the platforms of innovation, they not only make them likely to be really big from a macroeconomic perspective, but they also wrong foot the incumbents and market participants in terms of underestimating how big and meaningful they can be. Something that, that's following a steep cost decline, that doesn't manifest in terms of a, a different unit economics over three months. It takes a few years. It's really in the medium term where suddenly your unit growth is is really explosive. And so if you are a CEO, your median tenure is five years. So you're not necessarily investing based upon that medium-term strategic point of view. If you're an an analyst or a portfolio manager whose client or boss is going to fire you, if you get the next three months wrong, what do you care what it looks like over three to five years? And so people essentially under-invest in understanding that medium-term time horizon. And so it creates inefficiencies in both the expectations for how big these markets can be, and also kind of slows the reflexes of the incumbents who say, well, yeah, it's going to be meaningful, but it's not meaningful yet. And then the same with cross-sector. Cross-sector is interesting. When a technology is cross-sector, it's actually more likely to make it down the cost curve because you can hit unit economic cases from different 
actors. And it also means that kind of sectoral specialists, you know, and executives who spent his entire career in the automotive industry is more likely to, to be blindsided by something coming from outside of space. And the same with an analyst who just covers kind of automotive stocks is, is less likely to know how to do kind of the technology forecasting you need to, to understand the impact that these technologies can have. And then platforms of innovation, people often suffer from a failure of the imagination. They can't pre-imagine the things that are going to be built on top of one of these platforms. And so it means that often people misunderstand, you know, how much breadth and impact they can potentially have. Let's go through some maybe quick examples, these five technology platforms. Could you go through, uh, maybe give one example each of, of like how a company today manifests as a, capturing this, uh, as being a leader in this technology and why that makes them, I guess, participate in this universe? Well, let's start out with your area of expertise, and maybe you can tell me about it. But <laughs> neural nets and artificial intelligence, you know, we believe that effectively over medium term time horizon, the way in which software is created is going to transform where the fundamental, it used to be you needed to hire software engineers to create an intricate piece of software that was relatively fragile. Increasingly, you are going to feed data into neural network of some kind that then you can train with a lot of compute spend to deliver a service based on that data that you have. And so NVIDIA is an example of a company that provides the GPUs that power that data processing as well. You know, Google has its own brand of, of hardware trying to enable that. So, but from a very high level perspective, the entire computational stack is going to upturn from CPU based to some kind of either GPU or, or parallel processing base to accommodate all of this data that you're going to feed in and provide transformative software experiences. Right now you can see, you know, all of the VCs are investing in superhuman for X, which is basically doing text auto generation for people writing emails, but there's code auto generation and everything else. That is not going to be a system that's powered by the traditional um, data center stack. Robotics, we believe that the cost of a robot is going to fall roughly in half over five years. As a result, we have very different unit expectations than the rest of the market, which thinks the cost of robotics is going to fall in the single digit percentages per year. These robots aren't traditional robots. They're robots that will be able to work side by side with people working in a restaurant, with people working on a small scale assembly line. Teradyne's a company that actually has these collaborative robots, we call them, and has a very high rate of growth at selling them. Basically, we believe you're going to see robots everywhere and that that'll change the productivity of the labor force where they really will become tools that allow workers to be more productive and lower the unit cost of the service being provided. So the key there is we, we've all seen these robot arms on TV and, and you know, in stock photos. They're very big, scary robot arms that just that will knock you over if you're not careful. And they're sitting in a cage in a factory. These new robot arms are safe and will not hurt you and can be just in a normal environment in, in say, a small scale manufacturing facility or in the back of a kitchen. Yeah. And a third of the cost of that big, scary robot is the actual cage and stuff to prevent it from knocking somebody's head off. And another third is, is the cost of actually programming it to do the specific thing that you want it to do, which once you program it to do, you never want to change it because then you have to hire in this very expensive engineer to basically pay a third the cost again to change it to something else. Instead, you go to robots that actually can, they don't need to be as precise in terms of their actuation because they're using advanced sensors and neural nets to 
to error correct as they get close to the thing they're trying to grab. They can be much less expensive to train. And then you don't have to wrap them in the cage because they're not going to knock your head off. So it changes you know, the entire set of customers that could potentially deploy this thing to a much broader set of companies. Very much like this move of com- computers back in the day from large mainframes or mini computers down to a desktop. Now everyone can use them. Right. And so previously, it's not wholly the case, but it was mostly the case that like robotics deployments were a function of the CapEx and the automotive industry because they were the only people that would really invest in them. And so now um, robotics deployments are going to be actually a function of the of price elasticity as the price comes down. Maybe a final example for DNA sequencing. Sure. DNA sequencing, the cost of sequencing has has fallen a million fold over the last 15 years from $2.7 billion to roughly $1,000. We think it's going to fall another at least order of magnitude over the next five years. What's interesting is that we're now crossing price points where going from $1,000 to $100 brings you across the price point of a lot of traditional diagnostic tests. And so um, sequencing is going from something where it's been very useful to deploy in a research setting to understand what's going on to the body to um, actually deploying against real diseases today. And so it's starting with oncology and cancer care, where there are companies that are trying to provide services that monitor the cancer after it's been treated to search for, to look out for when it's coming back just with a blood draw. And of course, guiding what exact treatment you need based on the genomics of that cancer. But we believe it's going to expand from there. Every disease that you have is a genetic disease at root, even infectious diseases where you have a virus. Well, that's a piece of, you know, DNA that's, you know, replicating inside your body. So increasingly treatments for all kinds of diseases are going to be guided by genomic information. You know, the leading instrument provider to the space is Illumina. They're a very big company that had a, a period of growth through the adoption of sequencing on the research side. And then we believe that actually the unit volumes for the clinical side are going to be much larger than on the research side. And so kind of being that tool provider to all of these companies that are deploying these clinical applications is a really interesting spot to be. Awesome. As I look at these five technologies, three of them are pretty recent. DNA sequencing, AI, and blockchain, you could argue are basically post you know, 2000-ish technologies. Given that it seems like the rate of progress and discovery of new technologies is increasing, how do you expect that the number of disruptive technologies to change over the next, I don't know, decade? Do you expect this list to grow modestly, quickly, diminish? How do you think about that set, this set? It's an interesting question. I think I subscribe to the combinatorial theory of economic growth, where one of the macroeconomic puzzles is like, why does a technology happen when it does? And what is it like, you know, if you look at kind of the long, long term GDP, it's basically GDP per capita was flat, 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 flat. Now it's vertical. Right. And so one explanation for that is, okay, there's a few meaningful technologies that at some point we were going to discover, you discover them and then incremental technologies are less meaningful because you've already, you know, finding out how the like sewage lines and stuff was like the most meaningful thing because that extended human life and all this stuff. And so there's another theory of technological growth and how that impacts macroeconomies, which is that each, there's a certain number of technologies out there that are discoverable. When you discover one of them, 
that's just a single technology. When you discover a second one, that's a technology, but also combining the two is another potential technology. So then as you randomly, as a human society happen upon these additional technologies, the, your technology set grows exponentially. And so autonomous vehicles wouldn't be possible without AI, without kind of the electric drivetrain platform underlying it, without computers. And if that's the theory that you subscribe to, then you would expect these platforms of innovation would essentially create mushrooms of additional platforms behind it. So at the very least, you would expect that the underlying rate of major technology introduction would compress. I still think there is a coincidence of occurrences right now that we're in a unique time, but I think that the something on the order of a car every couple decades or the internal combustion engine every couple decades, I would expect that to be materially narrowed. It seems like society as a whole has systematized R&D and discovery much more so now than 50, 100 years ago. So much of discovery before where it was was kind of random and, and accidental. Today, whether it's research labs or whether it's incubators like YC, we treat it more like a process and we have a more optimistic and determinate view of the future. Like we can make new things and everyone in society should work very hard to try to find these new things. Yeah. And also if you like these tools become a part of making that process more efficient, right? So I think it's really hard to imagine, as you know, because we've tried to do it, like what are neural nets going to deliver us in the future in terms of technology discovery, in terms of making biotech R&D more efficient, in terms of in being applied to another area to essentially bring the future forward. If you look at when we solved Go, the game, it happened two decades earlier than it should have if we were just following kind of the CPU and Moore's law. So we've pulled two decades in the future forward to today. What other capabilities are we pulling forward? And then what additional discoveries does that bring to us? I think it's, you know, it's an impossible to answer question, but I think you can say with some confidence that you're definitely compressing like the time horizon to the next thing that's meaningful. Very exciting. I look forward to having you back, Brett, when we add the sixth disruptive technology. (laughs) Thanks, James. Maybe you'll cover it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That's it for this week. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.